And I invite you to turn in uh, your pew Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're in a, a series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, although it's been a few weeks. Um, actually, Pastor Briscoe looked at uh, Philippians 1 again last Sunday, which was great. Um, we actually looked at Philippians 2 the last time I was here to preach, and we're going to turn to that same text this morning, and we could spend a lot of time uh, with this text, and uh, I hope you don't think we spent too much time with it today, because it's a little longer message. Don't run away, <clears throat> but let's read the Word of God from Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to hang on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Jackie and Lily and I did a little camping recently. As I was cleaning up afterward, I was sweeping the dirt off of and folding the big blue tarp that I had put under the tent. And as I was doing that, I noticed a piece of tape on the tarp and it had a name on it. <clears throat> it was the name of my uncle. This wasn't even my tarp, it was inherited. And as I was folding the thing further, I noticed that, that it was patched. He had taken a little piece of, of new plastic, and he had put it over a tear, and, and he, he put a lot of work into this, you could tell. Okay? It wasn't just a, a, a cheap piece of duct tape or something like that slapped on. I mean, it was, it was placed, the seams were neatly cut, the edges were neatly cut, it must have been epoxied or something on, on both sides, so it was perfectly smooth and it wouldn't leak. And I was just in awe of this, and, and it struck me just how, how different we are as individuals. I mean, I probably would have just seen the tear and thrown the thing away. My uncle spent, I don't know how much time, fixing that whole thing until it was perfect. We're very different from one another, aren't we? I mean, one person actually fixes an old blue tarp. One person would throw it in the trash. Some of you are thinking, I've never owned a blue tarp in my life. I have no idea what he's talking about. 
Others of you are thinking, you mean people still go camping? <coughs> when they can stay in hotels? Why do they do crazy things like that? We are very different people from one another, and yet we all gather together in the same church, don't we? Friends, we live in a culture that seems to glorify our differences, glorifies actually even the idea of being different, of being unique somehow. That's really the goal of advertising, isn't it? To tell us somehow that if we buy this product, we will sort of stand out from the crowd. Think of how, how Jeep advertises their products. They show someone heading off-road, right? Getting away from civilization, going out into the woods. They're, they're tearing through mountain streams and they end up sitting on some mountain peak all alone looking over the valleys, sort of the king of the mountain. The trouble that advertisers have is they need to sell more than one Jeep, right? They can't just sell one. They can't make one person the only person at the top of the mountain. And so what they're really doing is they're, they're selling sameness. They're selling homogeny. They're selling each one of their Jeeps. They might be different colors, but they're all exactly the same. And then they're convincing us that somehow, if I buy one, I'll be different. I'll be unique, right? That's the miracle of advertising. Someone ironically sent me some old advertisements this week of at automobile ads from the early 20th century and a little further on, and I was struck by one of those advertisements for tires. <clears throat> and in that advertisement, it must have been from the 1950s because it showed like this 1950s two-door coupe, something that you can imagine Ward Cleaver would have purchased and it was driving off-road through the Sierra Desert, okay? Off-road. And I just realized that, you know, the, the, the automobile changes over the decades, right? It's the old Buick Coupe, now it's the Jeep Wrangler, but the story really doesn't change. If you drive this automobile, you can stand out. You can be different. You can be distinct. We all want to be different, friends. We all want to capture that glory of, of, you know, the woman in her shorts and hiking boots at the top of the mountain. And if you're an American here this morning, that's the kind of story that's imprinted on our brains. This is what we must be. We must be different. And that makes the message of today's text a really hard sell. Because what Paul says in the heart of this text is that each and every one of us should be the same. That we should all have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is that every person here, okay, we could just go down the road Every person here, we could go from one pew to another to another. What Paul is saying is that every one of us, as followers of Christ, if you were to cut us, we should bleed the mind of Christ. That's what should be at the heart and soul of each one of us, the attitude of Christ. Now, this is a very confusing thing for us as Christians, I think, because... 
Because in many places, the Bible also seems to affirm our individuality, right? It also affirms our uniqueness. For instance, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that we all have different spiritual gifts, right? We're all part of the body of Christ, but some of us are like arms, hands, some are like mouths and, and feet and eyes. We're all different. The book of Revelation presents us with a picture of heaven in which people are gathered, what, from every tribe and nation and language and people. So we're all different, and yet we're all the people of God. Even some of the famous baptism texts, um, we didn't read them this morning, but texts like from Galatians and, and Colossians that, that reveal a unity in the church amid diversity, where Paul writes, you know, we are Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. What he's getting at is we are people who form a communion, people who form a community, but that doesn't mean that all of our differences just fade away. Some of us own blue tarps, some of us don't. Some of us fix them, some of us throw them away. We're all very different. And so we can find it very confusing, this entire topic, when we're talking about, okay, are we meant to be different, are we meant to be the same? Which is it? We get confused. Let me give you an example, okay? Over the years, <clears throat> I've been asked many times, what do I think of Christian conferences? Okay, and specifically, what do I think of Christian conferences for men and Christian conferences for women? And I think I, I often disappoint people with my answers because I'm, I'm, I've always been kind of lukewarm about those things. And I, I don't mean to offend anybody this morning because I know some people really love those kinds of conferences. And for some people, they've changed your life. You've really grown as a Christian. For some people, you were saved at, at a conference like that. But my response has always been sort of lukewarm. And the reason is this. Because when we divide up between the sexes, all the women go over here and all the men go over here. I think there's, there's kind of an unwritten message there. There's a subliminal message that somehow, in some way, all right, male Christians are supposed to be different from female Christians and vice versa. Now, now this may surprise you. I've been to more men's conferences than women's conferences, um, so I can only speak to the one, okay? But some of the men's conferences that I've been to, not all of them, some of them that I've been to, it seems like they tend to emphasize more what it means or what they think it means to be a male than they do what it means to be a Christian. And so you come away from a conference like that with this, this idea that being a Christian man means that you're naturally the breadwinner, you make the decisions in the family, you know how to change your own oil, you either drive a Harley or you want to, and you certainly don't eat quiche. Okay? Sorry, kids, that's a really old reference. Ask your parents about it. If they don't know, ask your grandparents about it. But the not-so-subtle message in some of those conferences, all right, 
is that a Christian man is more like the hairy hunter Esau bringing home the bacon than the namby-pamby Jacob who's in the kitchen frying it up in the pan. And the emphasis is all on how males ought to be different from females rather than how both males and females alike need to have within them what? The mind of Christ. Rather than emphasize what the Bible says ought to be the same, we want to emphasize what we think ought to be different. And as a result, and again, I don't want to offend anyone, but as a result, we can end up with churches that are full of John Waynes and Keanu Reeves and Fred Flintstones rather than husbands and brothers and fathers that are filled with the mind of Jesus. Now again, I'm not saying that you should never attend a men's or a women's conference. All I'm saying is this. When you go to a conference like that, ask yourself the question, who am I being told here to model my life after? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? Because if it's not Jesus, friends, we're in trouble. You see, the church is full of people who on the outside, they look like Esau. Or on the outside, they look like Jacob. Or on the outside, they look like whoever. But what's important is what's on the inside. Do they look like Jesus Christ? Do they have the mind of Christ? Another way of getting at this, perhaps, is <clears throat> I've been listening to a, a podcast, a series of podcasts from Christianity Today, and it documents, um, maybe you've heard it, documents the rise and fall of, of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a church, a huge church in Seattle. Um, the pastor there was Mark Driscoll. It's a lot about him, how the church grew, how the church fell, but it's really about the story of, of the mega church in the United States. And how there are so many of these stories where these churches attract hundreds, thousands of people. Okay? We flock to these churches to hear a personality. We flock to them because they look cool, because you know the buildings have fancy lighting, or they're dark, or, or they have great music, or it's loud music, and we flock to these places. Okay? And then something happens. There's a character flaw in the pastor and the whole thing crashes and it dissolves and we have to find someplace else to go. And, and the question that, that they keep asking in the midst of this series, and, and again, it's a lot about Mars Hill, but, but they try to keep asking the question, and that is, why do we as Christians keep flocking to places like that and leaders like that? Why? And friends, after reading this text, I can't get it out of my head. And that is, I don't think what we're looking for in these places, in the congregations, in the people, in the leadership, in the pastors, we're not looking for the mind of Christ. We're looking for all the accessories. But what's in the heart? What's in the mind? Is it the mind of Jesus Christ? By now, some of us have, have been in this church for years and years and decades and decades. 
Are we looking for the mind of Christ? Do we know what the mind of Christ is? Do we have the mind of Christ in us? It begs the question, okay, what is the mind of Christ? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, it's still online, but let's just refresh our memories about it, right? What does Paul say is the mind of Christ? Jesus, because he was God, he left all of the trappings of Godhood behind and he humbled himself and he took on the very nature of a servant and he became a man and he went all the way to the cross and died the death of a criminal. That's the mind of Christ. Now there's a footnote here, <clears throat> okay? How we often understand this text and even how it's often been translated throughout history is something like this. Even though Jesus was God, okay, he gave that all up and became a man. Even though. It's sort of like this idea what you might say, um, you might say something like this. Even though he was once the richest man in the world, Bill Gates, spent his Thanksgiving serving in a soup kitchen in the inner city somewhere, okay? Even though he's this wonderful, great, rich man, wow, he he stepped down and, and, and he became a servant for a day. Friends, that's not, that's not the sense of this text. What this text is saying is this. It is exactly because Jesus was God and only because Jesus was God that he humbled himself and became a servant and was obedient to the cross. It's only because he was God. You see, friends, what we seem to forget is that this is the character of God, and it always has been. God doesn't change. This has always been his character. Think about how God has existed throughout all eternity, right? He has always existed, but he has not existed as, as one simple being. He's existed in a trinity of beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within that community, from all eternity... God has been serving, one person serving the other, bowing before the other, honoring the other. We read about that in the book of John. What does Jesus say? He says, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. I came to glorify my Father. We read about the Holy Spirit who sort of stands in the background, doesn't want any of the light on himself. What he wants to do is shine the light on Jesus, on Jesus. That's been going on throughout all eternity. This wonderful dance of submission and serving one another and glorifying one another. We see the same thing when God created the world, right? And when he he created human beings, he filled his world with human beings. He didn't do that for his own sake. He didn't create human beings because... Because, well, I need more voices to sing my praises. I might as well well create some human beings. He created for our sake. He said, you know, I've got this, this incredible joy and communion that I've experienced 
through all of eternity, I want to share it with somebody else. Let me bring human beings into my inner circle and let them experience the same love and joy and communion that I have throughout time. This is the character of God, and we forget that. And so Paul isn't coming to us in Philippians 2 and saying, you know what, God surprised us this week. He set aside his godhood and he took on the nature of a servant. He's rather telling us that because Jesus was fully and thoroughly God through and through, he stayed in character, he remained in character, and he left home, he left heaven, he left his Father, he left the community of the Trinity, and he became human. Because he was God, he did this. Because he was God, he set his eyes not on more but unless. That's the way of God. That's where we see His glory. Friends, it's the gospel, right? It's the gospel. Jesus didn't hang on to His own righteousness, did He? But He offered it to us. And what did He take on? My sin and your sin. He became sin for us. Jesus became the outcast so that you and I could become beloved sons and daughters of God. He became less so that we could become more to the glory of God the Father. That's the mind of Christ, and that's the mind that must be in us. It must be in me. It must be in you. It must be in you. It must be in you. All of us. Do you, any, any, you know any examples? Do any examples come to mind? Well, yeah, there are examples right in this letter, aren't there? Paul, who penned this letter, he wrote it from prison. Why is he in prison? For preaching the gospel. Why was he preaching the gospel? Because he wanted everyone to find the true life that he had found. And nothing was going to stop him. And so he was suffering for the benefit of of others. He put others before himself. In Paul's mind was the mind of Christ. And then there's Epaphroditus. We'll hear about him in just a, in just a few more verses. <clears throat> Not exactly a household name. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even a preacher as far as we know. He didn't have much star power. He wasn't Silas or Timothy or even Barnabas. From what we know about him, Epaphroditus was just an ordinary Joe who had in him the mind of Christ. And so he was sent by the church to Paul, to prison, to bring him food, to keep him alive, to bring him encouragement, to be present with him. And he risked his life to do so. We're told that he got so sick he almost died. But call, Paul calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Why? Because he shared the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And here Paul looks at the Philippians and he says, all right, now make my joy complete. Have in you the same mind. 
have in you this same mind of Christ. Friends, the emphasis here is not on being unique. It's not on being different. It's on being the same. Paul envisions a church full of people that he could pick any one of them at any time, and what he would find is the mind of Christ in that person. Now, it's interesting, Paul doesn't begin chapter 2 on the topic of sameness. Rather, he begins on the topic of, of differentness, on the topic of being distinct. He begins by reminding the Philippians how very different they actually are from the rest of the people of Philippi, from all of their neighbors. If you look at verse 1, he says, if you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, and, and you have to understand how this is written in the Greek, it's not a conditional statement like we usually use the word if, you know. If the Packers win the Super Bowl this year, you know, Aaron Rodgers will be justified in his off-season antics. That's a conditional sort of statement. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying if in terms of, well, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. He's saying if you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, and you do, okay, and if you have any comfort from His love, and you do, and if you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit and His people, which you do, this is all true for you, it's not true for your neighbors. But if it's true for you, then what? Then if you're distinct in that way, if you look different that, in that way because of what Christ has done in your life, then don't you think you should act differently? We heard last week and throughout chapter 1 how God's people are different, right? Last week we heard... We've been summoned. Not everyone's been summoned. Okay? We heard in the first chapter that we are, we are partners. We have a partnership in the gospel. We are partners with Paul. We're partners with God himself in the advancement of the gospel. You can't say that about everyone. We've been told in chapter 1 that we've been given the grace to suffer with Christ so that others might be helped, so that others might be lifted up. Not everyone's been given that grace. We have. The point is, Paul is saying, you are people who are distinct and different from, from the rest of the world, from all of your neighbors. So, what does that mean? Don't you think you've been called to live distinctly? Think of the Olympics. Uh, they just took place a few weeks ago, right? I can honestly say I don't think I watched one minute of the Olympics this year. But I know that the opening ceremonies took place, and I can just imagine what happened, right? Every country sort of lines up behind their flag, and they all march into the arena. And we've got, you know, the flag of China, and the flag of Japan, and the flag of Mexico, and the flag of the United States, and we all are citizens of these places, right? There's one flag that I don't think was there. It's the flag of heaven. And there are people from the United States and from Mexico and from China and from Japan and from Korea who are all lined up behind that flag. 
Because while they're citizens of all these other countries, Paul says, but first and foremost, you are citizens of the gospel. You are citizens of heaven. Live like it. What does that look like? Having you the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you and put it into action. So here's the question. Do you? Do you have this mind in you? Do you put it into action in your life? Do we all look the same? When our neighbors look at Christians, when they look at the church, does what stands out about us, is it the mind of Christ? You know, every day, friends, God gives us an opportunity to show to the world the mind of Jesus, to show the world what makes the church unique. And it's not our manners, it's not our morals, it's not our wealth, it's not our wisdom, it's not what makes us unique. It's the mind of Christ. Christian mothers with the mind of Christ, Christian sons with the mind of Christ, Christian citizens in the midst of a pandemic with the mind of Christ. Christian accountants and nurses and engineers with the mind of Christ. Christian politicians, Christian academics, Christian pastors, Christian firefighters, Christian counselors, all with the mind of Christ. The unique mind of Christ, of the one who humbled himself for the sake of others, who went down so that others could be lifted up. You know, I mentioned last time, just at the very end, the Philippians 2, we think, was actually a hymn, this section that talks about the mind of Christ. Perhaps, perhaps it was the first hymn. In other words, our earliest brothers and sisters thought so much of this mind of Christ that they boiled it down and they condensed it into the words of poetry. And then they memorized it. And we don't know if this was a song that Paul and Epaphroditus sang together in prison. Maybe the Philippian church was singing it while Paul was away. This was important stuff. And it's a pattern right? It's, 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 it's the Christian story. Christ goes down, he humbles himself for the sake of others. God exalts him to the highest place, and we see the glory of God, right? Christ goes down, he lifts others up. God exalts Christ, and we see the glory of God. It's the Christian story. It's a pattern. How do you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? You humble yourself. You say, I have no ability to save myself. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I need help. Jesus, help me. And he lifts us up. 
<laughs> and God is glorified, and like we said earlier, all of heaven rejoices. That's the Christian story. You humble yourself, God lifts you up. You humble yourself, God lifts others up, and God is glorified. You were a slave to sin. He lifts you up as a humble but brilliant son and daughter of God. It's a pattern. It's a pattern from John, John's gospel, the first gospel, right? The word that was with God, the word that was one or that was God, what happened? He became flesh. He was incarnate, and we have seen his glory. John chapter 12, Jesus took up his cross. It was the hour of his death. The one kernel of wheat went into the ground and produced many others, and we have seen the glory of God. It's a pattern, and that's still the way it is today, friends. Whenever we live out the mind of Christ in this world, the glory of God shines in that. Okay? Believe it. But it's a glory that's often hidden. The one thing that Paul tells us that's different in Philippians chapter 2 is the glory of God becomes publicly known. Jesus Christ is glorified before everyone else or before everyone else, in front of everyone else, for all eyes to see. That's not always the way it is in Scripture. When Christ goes down, when Christ is lifted up on the cross, most of us don't see glory in that. We're told we see the glory of God here. And friends, when we live out the mind of Christ, God is glorified, but the world may not see it. Let me just end with one story. Okay, this is a story I heard from Scott Jose, a wonderful preacher. I've actually shared it a number of years ago with this congregation. Um, but it's worth telling again. There was a, a surgeon who was performing surgery on a young woman. And while he was performing that surgery, he nicked one of the nerves in her face. And as a result of that, <clears throat> her face drooped on one side. She and her husband and the doctor got together afterward, after this surgery, to have a consult, and she asked the question that was on everybody's mind. Is it permanent? The surgeon looked her in the eye and he said, yes. I cut the nerve. The drooping is permanent. And as her eyes began to well up with tears, and as she silently began to sob, her husband came over, and he lifted her chin, and he looked at her face, and he said to her, I don't know, I think it's kind of cute. And then he bent down, and he kind of shaped his mouth, into the shape of hers and he gave her a kiss and he let her know that he would always love her that nothing would ever change that she was as great in his eyes as she had ever been and after that meeting that surgeon went into his office and he scribbled in his book immediately after that meeting today I have seen Jesus Christ in that husband, I have witnessed the glory of God. 
Just one surgeon saw it that day. But one day, it'll be public. Every time you live out the mind of Jesus Christ in your life and in the life of others, it will glorify God and it will be public and everyone will bend the knee before Jesus Christ and say, He, He is Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, our prayer this morning is simple. Teach us your mind. May your mind become ours. Amen.